0: Welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series created specifically for tourism operators. Talking Tourism, the expert series, is the ultimate resource for business owners who want to lift their skills to the next level. If you want to learn how to be a better tourism operator, listen on.
1: This is Talking Tourism and I'm today's host, David Reid. Every fortnight, the Tourism Industry Council Tasmania brings you conversations some of the brightest minds in the tourism industry. The Tourism Council is the peak body for tourism operators in our beautiful state of Tasmania. Each episode of Talking Tourism will deal specifically uh, with tourism-related topics, tips and advice for improving your business and getting ahead in our wonderful visitor economy. You might be listening outside of Tasmania, and if so, well, welcome. It's a lovely day today, and it's always lovely in Tasmania. The content of these podcasts will be relevant, I hope, for your tourism business wherever you are based. And today I'm speaking with Jen Fry, Director of Tourism Experiences and Visitor Experiences with Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Services. Afternoon.
0: Afternoon, David. It's a How pleasure to be here. How are you, Jen? I'm really well, thank you.
1: You've sent in a little note which says... Uh, Other job titles include babysitter extraordinaire, tennis court attendant, drive-through customer service rep, nature guide, bouncer. I think you're too small. Undercover agent, volunteer coordinator, track education officer, interpretation officer, discovery ranger program coordinator, mum, tourism services manager, lighthouse keeper. Where was that? Deal Island. Manager, visitor strategy, senior advisor of the Premier, goat herder.
0: Yes, that Was went. that
1: successful because we have seen you having uh, been at the wrong end of a goat um, <laughs> yes. incident? Yes. Yes, of
0: course it's successful.
1: Thank you. Uh, Director of Tourism Experience and Visitor Services, I wanted to ask you a simple question. In 1990, you were at the Waterloo University of Ontario. I was. Studying environmental studies. Yes. And in less than an hour, can you take us from there to here?
0: I can if you interrupt me lots, otherwise it'll, you <laughs> know, take an it, could hour. Take, it could take at least an hour.
1: <laughs> okay. So how, how have you arrived in parks and in this job?
0: Yeah. So I, um, was supposed to go to university for teaching. That is what my parents wanted me to do. But there was another university course that called to me, which was environmental sciences. And It wasn't at the closest university to home. I would have to go away. And it had the almighty mecca of a exchange program to Australia. And I really wanted to go to Australia.
1: Why? What was the...
0: I don't know. There was always... So you're in Quebec. No, I was in Ontario. Ontario, sorry. Yes. um, And the university that um, was closest to home was 20 minutes away, a drive, easy to get to on my bike, which I loved doing. uh, But no, I said, I don't want to do that teaching course anymore, mum and dad. I want to go and do environmental sciences. It was a last minute decision and I felt it was the right one to make. I think my parents were a little bit confused, but... Too bad for them. I then went to that university, got into that course, and you had to maintain a decent average, I'll say, in order to go on the university exchange. And I made that average and got the university exchange and went to RMIT in Melbourne for environmental science.
1: Wonderful.
0: And it was such a great experience. And I was so enamoured with Australia. I just so loved the very idea of these wide open spaces that didn't have houses everywhere, because where I grew up in Canada, near Niagara Falls, it's very urban. Even though we have the beautiful falls, um, it's not like what people picture. And so I came out and was studying ecology on the Mary River, and I was... Um going to beaches and hanging out in these massive sand dunes. And I just fell in love and also fell in love with a guy. Ah. Yeah. And that guy, I went back to my university uh, and, uh, in Canada and finished my degree. And that guy called me when he finished his and he said, hey, I'm traveling up the East Coast of Australia in a combi van, want to come? And I said, oh, yes, I do. Wonderful. Yeah, and so I did that with him and we went to Townsville and Cairns and I worked up there. That's when I became the undercover agent and um, came down to Tassie after a few years up there needing some seasons and some wild around me again. Okay. Yeah.
1: Now, talking about wild, a lot of people like wild. They do. A lot of people, not me, a lot of people like wild. A lot wild. of people do. Tasmania has been known for its wild for a long time. Mm. Mona came along some years ago. Is Tasmania still known for wild or is it now known for other things as well?
0: Yeah, I think Tasmania is known for other things as well and rightly so. I I think that um, Tasmania's outward-facing view is um, not the same as what people see when they look from the out in. So what we think of ourselves as Tasmanians, and I include myself now as a Tasmanian having been here for 20 odd years um, and I, I feel like people from the outside um, that the change has just been amazing over the last 20 years Be- before when I said when I was living in Townsville and I was moving to Tasmania people would say why why would you want to even do that why would you want to go there's nothing there there's nothing there and for me I was like exactly that's why I want to go um, but now people don't say that anymore. They say, Oh, Tasmania, I'd love to go, or oh, I'd love to live there, or you're so lucky.
1: So does that mean the value proposition has changed? Does th- that mean that so. people now aspire to nothing? Whereas previously it was, oh God, nothing?
0: I believe so. And I th- and you know that has a lot to do with society as a whole and Tasmania being positioned to take advantage of that, very rightly so, by government and branding agents. You know, they've been doing a fantastic job of creating this need in people to come to Tasmania, but actually society as a whole created the need in the first place for people to stop, relax, the new branding come down for air, which is based just as much on natural experiences as it is on cultural experiences. I think it allows people to stop and pause and take a break from that hectic lifestyle. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have that in Tazi, We do. We really do it is very hectic here at times, um,
1: but, but but can I can I put a proposition to you that Queensland has a lot of national parks it does you could go up for air you could Victoria has a lot of national parks where mm-hmm. you could sit around with lots of air you could. and what is the specialness about Tasmanian national parks that makes people wish to visit us as opposed to those others or do they do the others as well as ours or? um, what I'm trying to ask is the value proposition or the, the promise that we make about our parks obviously still has a lot of relevance in the market.
0: I think so. I think that's probably, that's probably it. Our nothingness is still known, um, and is still true. You know, when, when you think about it, Tasmania is a small state, and yes, we we are half of our state is reserved. But if you look at the other states, their reserve area might well be larger, but they are larger states. And so we might have, however many hectares we have in reserve, and they might have a similar amount, but it's our half of our state. And th- I think that's the drawing that people sort of latch onto a little bit that you go there and half of the state is is wild. Now, that's not it's not true. It isn't wild because, one of the things that I often explain to people is my wild and your wild and the guy on the street's wild and the person who's coming from an urban centre's is wild is all very, very different. It's all very relative. But we have all of those experiences for people ready to go. We have the wild of being on a bus in a natural area like Cradle Mountain and we have the wild of actually um, staying in a hotel in the middle of a national park like Pump House Point, so, in the so, middle of the Tuah, in the World Heritage yeah. area.
1: So, so the, a, a, a question after that is: Which are the most popular? Which are the most popular parks in Tasmania, and why are they so popular?
0: So, our most popular national park is Freycinet, and they. I believe that Freycinet is so popular for two reasons. One, the weather. The weather is beautiful on the east coast. It is less rainy. It is, the beaches are absolutely stunning. And often those photos are very true. You can go to Wineglass Bay in many times of the year and at many times of the day, even in summer, and see very few other people. So that, we meet that proposition. We meet that. Wineglass Bay, 6 a.m. in the morning, it's you, a couple of yachts. And a couple of other campers, and that's a big beach for maybe eight people. It's pretty spectacular to be able to do, and that is in the height of summer that Indeed. you look at
1: that. Yep. So, so what are the other popular parks? Why are they – So, how, do you have in your instant recall, you know, the, the, the list of how, how they rush down and, and what's the least popular or –
0: yeah, well, no, well, I don't know the least. That's that's an interesting one, but I do know... Um, because the least
1: popular, actually. Sorry to interrupt. You. I know the least, I do know the least. But even if it's Mount William, isn't that a gorgeous place? Because it's Mount
0: William's beautiful, isn't it? And, and yeah. It's,
1: and it's probably so beautiful because there are not many people there as well. Yeah. So it is least popular and, and most beautiful. Sorry. Yes, yes. I well, Mount
0: it. William is a very beautiful park, but it isn't our least popular. So um, our... Our big three, as we call them, are Freycinet Cradle and Mount Field in that order. Right, um, and uh, Cradle is very um, close to Freycinet in terms of visitation. Mount Field's a little bit less than the two, um, and the reason that they are popular, Mount Field and Cradle. Mount Field is easy; it's really close to Hobart. It also is beautiful, and Tarn Shelf is stunning. So, um, a lot of times we have been talking about Mountfield as being the park for all seasons, cause you can go there and get into different experience every, every season of the year. Uh, and so people like to take their friends and family there
1: right. to be
0: able to see a bit of Tassie wildness. So that's why Mountfield is, is popular. Cradle.
1: So, the, t- t- so Mountfield is the Hobart based one. It's the, it's the closest. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
0: I think that Mount Field, you know, that that waterfall, Russell Falls, is absolutely beautiful, 100% true. And the big trees are lovely Um, and the tarn shelf is stunning. And all of those things together make for a fantastic experience so close to Hobart.
1: What are our visitors seeking to do in our parks? Are are we giving them what they're looking for, do you know? Do you think? Do yes. you research?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I do think we are doing that. So the Parks and Wildlife Service manages to what's called a recreation opportunity spectrum. This is nothing new. It's not brand new. It's not special. It um, emerged from the United States probably in the 60s and 70s. And the ROS, the Recreation Opportunity Spectrum, which you know, different people call it different things, but we'll, we'll call it the recreation opportunity spectrum for argument's sake. That tells us that we need to provide lots of different types of recreational experiences for lots of different types of users. And our zones that happen to be overlaid on a piece of national park allow for that to happen. So if we take Cradle, for instance, it has a visitor services zone, which is the one that's marked red on the map. And that visitor services zone has in it visitor centres and flushing toilets and paths that are hardened and car parks for people to come, big car parks for buses. It, it caters for lots and lots of visitors. It includes Dove Lake. And that track is, is hardened around and it has lookouts that are safer for a lot of people to stand on. Then we also have um, a recreational opportunity spectrum that allows for people to push themselves a little bit and go a little bit deeper, but they're still relatively safe. We call that a recreation zone. No, and that tends to be for people who are um, willing to go the extra little bit. They are well-prepared, which is super important in Tessie. um, and they can have a bit more of an adventure that is away from a lot of people. The track might not be hardened We might not have as many flushing toilets. In fact, we probably won't have any. And then we go into the self-reliant recreation zone, which means that you won't be using any motorised access to get to where you want to go for the most part, for the most part. And then we have wilderness zone.
1: Right. Okay. So you're comfortable that for the marketplace that we're in at the moment – And for the foreseeable future, we've got this balance about right, about how many people are going, and we haven't overdone it, and we're we're on track, and we're still meeting the market demand.
0: Yes, I am. I feel like when the Parks and Wildlife Service applies its proper planning principles of providing for a spectrum of opportunities for all sorts of people to enjoy our natural areas... And we recognize that in some areas we are going to have to harden the experience. And by that, I mean, all right, there's more and more people coming to this spot. The track is becoming more and more muddy. People are trying to avoid those muddy spots. So they skirt around it. The track is becoming wider and wider and wider. We need to do something that's environmentally not sustainable. Yeah. We harden the track. We put a duck board down. The track on either side begins to recover. The vegetation grows right up to the side of the duck boards or even through the duckboards in some case. Um, and we've, we've got something that then allows a hardened experience for people to go in a bit further. So there's lots of different ways for us to manage increasing visitors.
1: Do you spend a lot of time, energy and money, which is probably all the same thing, resource? Yep. Do you spend a lot of resource telling people? Do you have a a very successful website telling everybody you can do this, you can't do that. This is hard. This is not. This is a recreation what, not in those terms. But do you yes. do you spend a lot of time telling people about the opportunities and facilities in parks?
0: We do, absolutely. Um, we have. Um, a visitor journey that we try and and, um, educate on for all of our experiences as much as we possibly can. And that includes, for instance, if you're going to go on the overland track, we provide you with information for your planning. We provide you with pre-visit information just before you go. Then we provide you with information when you arrive at check-in. And then we provide you with information along the track to help you day to day to day. And then we provide you with information at the end. So, yes, we absolutely manage people's visitor experiences by the most part. But when you talk about wilderness zones, people don't want to be managed anymore. They want to be able to experience something and not really have someone providing that curated experience. And we need to provide for that as well. And we do.
1: Okay. This is a completely random question, but... um after the bushfires last year, Mona put in an installation in some of your parks south of Hobart. Yes. How's that going, Haraffin? Sorry,
0: Haraffin. That's the name of the Haraffin. It's, it's probably it's probably you know said with a um, a, a Danish accent or something, which I, I'm, I have probably. a Canadian one and therefore I'm not I've not quite got it. However, that at Hastings, um, and that's that's gone really well by all accounts. The number of people who came down, especially during Dark um, MoFo and came out of our, what is a visitor um, services zone at Hastings? So it is, you know, one that we manage for people. They came out of that feeling like they had had a huge connection to nature and place in a way different way than we would have ever provided for people because we don't have the resources to do something like that. But the um, Dark Lab... They, they did have those resources alongside the government to put something special in that allowed people to connect with this place in a totally different way. It's fantastic.
1: Mm. Yeah. So, um, the culture and the wild of Tasmania joining forces. Yeah. We should see it everywhere.
0: We should. I'm a big believer of arts and parks. I, I feel like, um, Art allows people to think outside the square, outside of their comfort zone. It pushes us to think differently. And so do natural experiences. And so when you combine the two, you can have things that are super powerful. And my job, what I do, is connecting people with nature. I really believe that people need nature. And I really Mm -hmm. believe that nature needs people. And you can't have people advocating on behalf of nature and saying, no, we we do need to do something about this braided track, or we do need to do something about this beautiful beach and not have the plastics washing up on the shore. We do need to do things like that, but they're not going to do that if they haven't had an experience. So we need nature, and nature needs us too. It needs its advocates, and we do that better. We are better advocates for something that we know and understand. So nature needs us to and we need nature and art allows us to connect in a different way and might allow other people who wouldn't otherwise think about nature to connect in a different way well,
1: that's a really good point You've got some big projects underway at the moment.
0: Uh Uh-huh, we do huge,
1: huge projects. You've got you're spending money like a man with no arms at Cradle and at Fraser, and it's all happening.
0: How does a man with no arms spend money?
1: I don't know. It's a very interesting (laughs) colloquialism. I have absolutely no idea. It's like the one arm paper hanger and people (laughs) like that. I've got no idea. They're so busy. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) regardless of all of that, you you are you are you do have some mammoth projects on your plate at the moment. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask a question in two that has two components of it. One is how is all that going of the rollout of those massive things? And this is a podcast for tourism operators as so what are the opportunities that might appear and be around in the future? Uh, that weren't there before because of these capital projects. So h- how can our industry get involved more or less or however uh, from these from these mammoth capital projects? I think... I say mammoth, sorry. They're, they're big.
0: Big. They are big. Um, I think that a lot of the funding that has come our way from the government ha- for these capital projects has been unfortunately a bit of catch-up. So a lot of the things that we're doing now is around creating better experiences in the experiences that we already have. So the, um, you know, the sewerage works that's happening at Mariah right now. This is something that we need to do on Mariah to make Mariah an even better experience than what it currently is for people. Because the sewerage that was on Mariah, the toilets that was on Mariah. And if you ever speak to a parks person, they will tell you time and time again that it always comes down to the toilets. Um, And so here it is yet again coming down to the toilets. Um, So the the sewerage on Mariah needed an upgrade because we're having more and more people start to visit. Uh, And because Mariah is a beautiful place... Uh, and it deserves to have those visitors coming across on the ferry and seeing the the convict ruins and the the natural um, beauty of the painted cliffs and the geology of fossil cliffs all of those things combine to make a fantastic experience and people have caught on and they're coming out and we need to catch up right so a lot of the capital like if you look at the parks and wildlife service capital budget a lot of it is being spent on things that we're either at, at capacity now and we know we need to do something about it or we look into the future and in the future gaze of Mariah as a good example. We know that, that there'll be more and more people going. We know that. And so we need to make sure that we're ready for those people to come so they can have a safe and enjoyable experience in our parks and reserves. We do have some bigger ticket items that are happening as well. So the next iconic walk, on the West Coast, wherever that will, well, we, we're hoping that that will be on the West Coast. Um, we're still in the middle of trying to make sure that the location is not going to be something that doesn't work. Right. So the government gave us $20 million in an election commitment to build the next Iconic Walk. And one of the things that they said we needed to do was to provide for economic opportunities in a regional area. And if we can't build a walk that people will want to come to, then there's no point because it will not provide any economic opportunities for the people in that area. So we have to be really careful what we're doing. The election commitment wasn't build a walk on the West Coast the election, or East Coast or wherever. The election commitment was please make a difference to the, to the, economic, the regional economic opportunities for this area, for whatever area. So we have to stay true to that. And we know at the moment that after looking across all of the various proposals that came into the Parks and Wildlife Service from the public, that the West Coast, the Tyndall Ranges, had a lot going for it out of the selection criteria. And an assessment panel, they viewed all 35 areas that we looked at and came up with the Tyndall Ranges. It's beautiful. It really is. But whether or not we can actually make it there is still yet to be seen. We have to do the market testing. We also have to do our our proper planning, our due diligence. So, you know, one of the things that commercial operators often say to me when they're about to embark on something new is that they have to go through our assessment process, which we call the RAA. And the reserve, it's called a reserve activity assessment or an RAA. So if you want to do something brand new that the public can't really do, then you need to do an RAA, a Reserve Activity Assessment. And commercial operators come across this a lot. If you're coming to us to take people for a short guided walk up to Russell Falls, well, people do that all the time, and there's there's no real need. That's been approved multiple times for various operators to do that, and so we don't need to undertake. So
1: yours isn't going to be any different to any of the others, so you don't need an RAA. Exactly. Okay. But right.
0: people who want to do something new, and this is often within the EO, the expression of interest process, but often outside that as well, people who want to, say, land a helicopter in a brand new spot, that people haven't landed before. There might be a helipad there, like on Tasman Island, for instance. They needed to have an RAA, a Reserve Activity Assessment, in order to make sure that that was something that the environment, it, that it could be operated in a sustainable fashion. Um, and we need to do the exact same process for anything that we want to do in a national park or reserve. So the sewage at Mariah Island, it requires a reserve activity assessment. We have to go through the same things that any other person has to do. And the next iconic walk in the Tyndall Ranges needs an RIA. So we have to do all of those things. And when we go through in a reserve activity assessment, when we go through the RIA, it may throw up that there is an endangered snail in that area or a tree that's never been found before and if that happens we may have to say oops we can't build our next yeah. iconic walk there and we have to go back to the drawing board
1: um let's come back to some of these some of these uh the ways that the tourism industry can be involved with your organization and get Licenses to operate. Yes, I think that's called a CVS license.
0: It used to be called a CVS, oh, which it's was got a, changed. Yeah, it did. Um, so the Parks and Wildlife Service had three different areas that provided people with access to use managed, land managed by the Parks and Wildlife Service. It had um, three different areas and under three different managers. And we were all s- deciding what it was that people could or couldn't do within reserved areas. And my job back then was with the commercial operators and we were it was called a CVS, a Commercial Visitor Services License. But everything has been now pulled into one large lease and license area. And that's called Parks Property Services. And that's that's one big, huge area. It's got way more resources now. Everybody's in the same thing and everybody can undertake everybody else's types of, of business, but there's a lead for um, each one of those types of, of reserves. So some people, for instance, they want to put sheep on a reserve that's right next to them. Um, and so they'll get a, an access license in order to put their sheep in an area. Um, It might be that someone wants to put a jetty up, or somebody wants to tie off their boat to some rocks, or somebody wants to build a Telstra tower. And they all need to come into the Parks and Wildlife Service to receive approval, and they receive approval through a lease or a license. So commercial operators are essentially the same. They're doing this – they're asking for the same thing, approval to use parks managed land for a lease or licence. So they're all being managed now by one larger group within the park service.
1: Okay, because that's changed a little recently, hasn't it? It has, yeah. Okay. It's
0: changed in the last 12 months or so. Okay. So now um, we give you a lease or licence. You don't have to have a CVS anymore. You've just got your lease or licence. And and
1: does that licence – sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But but there used to be a – An arrangement, a liaison, a nexus or a collection with the TICT about being an accredited operator? Yeah. And I don't know whether – is that still the same? Yes. Do you still have the same sort of criteria to –
0: We do, yeah. Okay. So um, we now call – instead of calling us um, the organisations who work with the Parks and Wildlife Service for Tourism, CVS, we – Commercial Visitor Services – we now refer to everyone as nature-based tourism operators. Right. Right. So you're nature-based tourism operators now. Um, And we do absolutely have a um, partnership with the TICT around um, having a Share the Wonder logo. So we have a, a... a couple of partnerships with the TICT, but one of them is around, if you are an accredited licensed operator with the TICT and you have a nature, and you are a nature-based tourism operator with the Parks and Wildlife Service, you have a lease or license with the Parks and Wildlife Service, then you can use our Share the Wonder logo on your um, website and on your brochures, for instance. And a lot of people feel like that is great branding. We, we love when operators want to do that with us. We think it's fantastic. Um, and they just need to apply to us, to the Park Service or to the TICT, and we get the ball rolling with that. The other thing we do is within our lease or license, we ask that people within 12 months are accredited with a, um, an industry body. Now, we suggest to people that a good one to become accredited with is the TICT. But there are lots of different types of of um, nature-based tourism operators out there. Ecotourism Australia mm. also has an accreditation, um, and there is also, you know, if someone does horseback riding in our reserves, and all they do is horseback riding then they might go to Horseback Riding Anonymous Australia. I, I don't know if that's a thing, but yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and decide yeah, that their that's, that's that their one. best accreditation because that has the most relevant accreditation for them. And we we can't um, tell people you must be accredited with the TICT or Horseback Riding Anonymous or Equitourism Australia, but we do tell them that they need to be accredited within 12 months of operating. And... By and large, that does happen with the TICT, which allows us to work closely with the TICT when things aren't maybe going as well as they should from the commercial operator's perspective, from the nature-based tourism operator's perspective or from a park's perspective as well.
1: And therefore, do you offer alongside whichever professional body? Yep. um, Professional development or some um, courses or some... Uh, assistance to tourism operators? Uh, how, how does your, your organisation work?
0: So that's that points to the other um, partnership that we have with the TICT. So we have a partnership as well with them to deliver um, professional development um, around the Parks Boost workshops, which have been highly popular and successful for people to come and learn from not necessarily from parks people, but sometimes from parks people um, around the nature or the cultural heritage. They might learn about guiding techniques from Drysdale. So we, and we do that in conjunction with the TICT. So it's a great program for people to get involved with. Um, and from my perspective, the Parks and Wildlife Service is all about providing safe and enjoyable experiences When we talk about visitor services, when we talk about tourism, we like to provide safe and enjoyable experiences. And it's really hard for us to do that time and time and time and time again, without actually having that done by nature-based tourism operators. Mm -hmm. Nature-based tourism operators are the best way, by and large, for people to go outside their comfort zone and experience something that they might not have otherwise done. Because- it allows them to remain safe and, by and large, if the operator is accredited with people like the TICT, they're also going to enjoy that very much. And so it helps us to meet our goal from from the Tourism Experiences and Visitor Services branch.
1: You're certainly reassuring me because I'm seeing a number of, um, um, as you know, I, I travel a fair bit to the East Coast, I'm seeing a lot of buses going up into Fresno. And I, I wonder how, how many of those are... Um, authentic, Mm. realistic. I do uh, too. (laughs) And how often they just let people out and say, their visitors out and say, right, see you in a couple of hours.
0: Yeah. So we have over 300 operators on our database, people who are um, nature-based tourism operators and have their lease or their license. So that's a lot of operators when you think about it. It is. Yeah. Um, And Um, I think that a lot of the people are genuinely doing the right thing. Not all of them, though, are providing the very best experience that they could. Uh, And that's why we we follow up with people and make sure we write them letters. We say, have you got your accreditation? And we've gone so far as to use it as a way for people. So uh, what happens is a lot of people will complain to the park service when they have a bad time with an operator. So we would get complaints, i suggest, monthly about, certain operators. And sometimes it's just people who brushed against people who've had a bad day. The weather's gone bad. The tire went flat. You know, there's, there's lots of different reasons. And we kind of take that on board and say, thank you. And we let the commercial operator, the, the nature-based tourism operator know. And we say, this happened, we get it. They'll often come back with an explanation. Um, and that's that. But sometimes we'll get people complaining time and time and time and time Not the same
1: people. You're saying a lot of complaints about the same operator.
0: That is what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, And when that happens, we start to build up a pattern and then we get in touch with the TICT and we say, are these, these guys are accredited with you. They tell us, are they? Uh, And... They tell us yes or no. If they are accredited, then that's a chance for Luke to have a different sort of, and and the guys at the TICT, to have a different sort of conversation. That's right. And, you know, because my job isn't about getting people so they can't operate in a a national park. Uh, As I said, nature-based tourism operators help us to achieve our goal. I want them to be able to operate in in a safe and enjoyable manner. Um, And so it's all about educating them and bringing them into a spot where they feel even better about providing for awesome experiences, and the TICT does actually help people to provide even better experiences.
1: A parks in a good place at the moment? When I talk about a good place, i mean a good place about there's been a, a, a lot of uh, money um, in the forward estimates put forward to, as you were mentioning earlier, a bit of catch-up rugby really, but... I think there was a, muted a few years ago, about $30 million being allocated to parks over the next few years. Then there is the projects at the specific ones which are not involved in that, which is probably Mariah and Fresenay and Cradle. So, I mean, there's obviously a significant investment. So that means there must be, uh, first of all, before anybody makes an investment, they must make a value decision that this is a good idea where to put your money. Yeah. So presumably that's all been done and and the, the organi- your organisation is in a good space?
0: Yes, absolutely. So from a budget perspective, the Parks and Wildlife Service is looking amazing. We haven't had this much capital funding for a very, very long time and it is, you know, over the last few years we have definitely seen um, some amazing uh, expenditure that's been put, put, put towards us, uh, to put towards the Parks and Wildlife Service to do that catch up. There's been, you know, millions of dollars. They've said, this is just to cut. We get it. You guys need to catch up, catch up, go. Um, which is, you know, for lookouts, for pathways, for picnic tables, for things that, from a maintenance perspective, when, when you think about the Parks and Wildlife Service and you think about one national park, let, let's just let's just think of one that most people would be familiar with. Um, let's go with, I don't know, Douglas Apsley, which is on, on the East Coast again. And it has in it a car park and a track and a waterfall area. And just to maintain those little bits of that national park, we're talking about millions of dollars just to maintain that that car park and that track to a, to a point, and the toilets, to a point that would meet most standards of what people are expecting. And we don't have millions of dollars that we have been given until recently when the government said, yep, you guys do need to catch up. We can see this. We have... Uh, it would be naive of me to let the listeners go away feeling that parks is great because if you, that's just one national park I've just pointed Mm -hmm. out with one Mm -hmm. small little visitor node. And we have 49% of the state with various visitor nodes all over the place. And each one of those has a maintenance budget that for the most part won't get funded but we are concentrating on those high-value areas and the government has come to the party and has absolutely provided us with some money that allows us to take on some really much-needed maintenance work, which is fantastic.
1: Okay, Jen, in the next few years, where are the biggest opportunities for the tourism operators that are listening to you and I today? Where can they think that they might be able to invest Um and have some brilliant product development ideas?
0: So if I was a, a tourism operator, a nature-based tourism operator at the moment, I would be looking at the Journeys Project. So the Journeys Project is something that's being managed out of um, Department of State Growth and there are five journeys across the state uh, and each one of those will most likely start to attract more investment And I think, David, you would be familiar with the Great Eastern Drive.
1: Oh, just a little.
0: And that particular drive, um, even in in its conception, was able to attract a fair amount of infrastructure funds that needed to happen for road upgrades, pull-out points, making the experience for people even more amazing than it it already was. Uh, And these journeys that are going around the state, they will most likely do the same. And the Southern Journey, which is going to go down to Cockle Creek, is probably one that is, um, well, it'll be a, it's been announced and it will be, um, you know, starting with, with investment from the government's point of view, marketing, as well as, um, you know, visitor planning. And that will eventually lead to more experiences for people to do. The Parks and Wildlife Service has got its Cockle Creek site plan, that has been, it was advertised about a year ago, I think, which shows all the different things that we're about to do there, inclu- including new car parks, new toilets, camper van facilities, because we know it's coming. And, you know, the government has invested. That's one of the sites it's investing in. And we are putting our money towards, the Parks and Wildlife Service is putting the money towards upgrading that experience. So if, if I was a savvy tourism operator, I would look at those journeys and see where the infrastructure spend is likely to be that will probably open up more opportunities.
1: Good idea. Good idea. And that does that uh, does that provide a new lease for the railway down there as well? So there's a whole range of opportunities, isn't there?
0: Well, yeah, that railway.
1: <laughs> we'll just leave that alone, do we? Leave that alone. <laughs> leave that alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jen... Um, what other topics did you come to the uh, podcast to discuss with us today?
0: well, i I guess I wanted people to know that when they first come into the Parks and Wildlife Service with an idea, that it's best to best to know that our questions and our conversation is to help. So, People will often come and they'll say, "Jan, I've got a great idea. Let's do something really fictional so nobody can ever say that this happened. But Jen, you said that this was going to happen and it did or didn't. So they'll come to me and they say, "Jan, I want to be able to let the kids ride their pet dragons in the swamp over by the volcano. Maybe we won't use volcano actually. I'll start again. Not, 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 <laughs> a, not a good example today. <laughs> if we don't have volcanoes in Tassie. Um... They there
1: could be. After they come this. to me
0: and they they, <laughs> they come to me and they say, we a want pet a, dragon
1: want across a, the marsh,
0: across the marsh, um, in the sea of fire." And I say to them, "You know, pet dragons can be a little bit difficult because they can bring in diseases." And that marsh has got a lot of biosecurity issues associated with it, with some really important species that are really susceptible to algae. And I know that if your pet dragons are swimming in that sea and then they come into the marsh, it's going to be problematic. So what if we said that you put your pet dragons over here in this field that has daisies instead? And then they're able to still do the product. They're able to still get an idea up. But it's not necessarily in the exact way that they had imagined. And it's not because I don't, or the Parks and Wildlife Service staff, when they're talking, it's not because they don't want to um, help. It's because they're trying to stop people from having to go down these processes that are long and involved. If you want to bring your pet dragons into parks,
1: so you're trying there'll to give be an them- RAA. So you're trying to give them the best <laughs> opportunity of success.
0: I am. And so are the park staff. So when, when they're chatting with, with tourism operators about their ideas, a lot of people will go away and they'll say, oh, you know, I just got the big no. And we, we at, at parks are really, we're not trying to give the big no. What we're trying to do is help people to achieve something. Yeah, move things along a little bit, maybe in a slightly different way.
1: Jen Fry, thank you so much for coming. And thank you to all our listeners for listening. And I hope you got a lot of value out of our conversation because I did. We've been talking to Jen about national parks, general matters of of tourism and tourism operations within parks, and it's been fascinating. If you've enjoyed today's show, please tell your other tourism colleagues because they can take a listen as well. Thanks for listening and we'll all see you in a fortnight. You've been listening to Talking Tourism, brought to you by Tourism
0: Industry Council Tasmania. For show notes, other materials and episodes, head
1: to tict.com.au. Be sure to come back every fortnight for a new instalment of Talking Tourism.